All right. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Red Meat Profit Partnership Conference Call for November 2016. I'm Aaron Meekle, as always, your host for tonight, and as you'll have heard, we're recording the call. It'll be available online in a day or two on the Beef and Lamb New Zealand podcast channel. And as usual, if you haven't checked it out, I'd certainly encourage you to, to have a look. There's calls from the last couple of years on there, and we're starting to build up a bit of a library from this year as well. So during this call, the lines are muted, so you can go about whatever you want to do at home, have a cuppa, get the kids off to bed, that sort of thing. It won't disturb us. We can, you can hear us. We can't hear you. So if you do want to ask a question, you need to text it in or email it to me, or even if you're up with the social media thing, send it in by Twitter. I've got the, the laptop hooked up, and I'll be able to check those during the call. We've had a few questions come in. We'll try and get through as many of them we can um, in the time we've got allotted. So... Uh, Let's get on with it. So on this call tonight, we're discussing the spread, the causes, the diagnosis and the control or management of facial eczema. If you're listening in the South Island or even parts of the North Island, you may not feel that FE is a threat to your sheep, your beef cattle, your dairy cows or your deer. But for some time now, the extent and the threat of facial eczema has been predicted to increase. And for those of you who can remember not that long ago to the summer of 2015-2016, we saw some of the highest and most widespread FE levels seen. And certainly the spore counts that Beef and Lamb New Zealand were advertising each week in our e-diary were um, off the charts, literally. And if you've seen recently, this year's lamb crop and farmers' bottom line are showing some evidence of the impact on stock health, stock productivity and ultimately profit. Now within Dairy NZ, Dairy Industry New Zealand and Beef and Lamb New Zealand and our respective industries, more and more effort is being directed or being certainly considered at the moment towards avoiding, remedying or mitigating the impacts of the disease. And so tonight we're going to discuss the biology of facial eczema itself, the impacts of the toxin on animals. We'll talk about what's happening with farmers or for farmers to help them deal with it. And so for change tonight we've actually got two guests. Robert Carter, who chairs the Facial Eczema Working Group, and Dr Neil Towers, who's had a lifetime of working with, with facial eczema. So welcome to the call, gentlemen. Thank you. We'll get underway. Um, Robert, I might just start with you, just the um, usual introductions. What's uh, your background? Where do you farm? And why are you involved in this issue? And what's your experience with it? Well, thanks, Aaron. Uh, my wife, Suzanne, and I farm southwest of Taumaranui. We've got a 300-hectare hill country block down there. And... Um, Facial eczema visited us, visited us in a bad way originally back in 1992. We'd had a recorded with flop for a long time prior to that. And I'd crossbred them with Texels, which um, gave a, a good lift in meat production. But at that stage I hadn't realised that um, Texels weren't quite so good as far as FE tolerance was concerned. Although I love the sheep, the Texel, um, we really were caned. We lost about... 130 out of 400 ewe hoggets that year and I decided then that I had to do something about it. So I did my research and I decided, or we decided that um, breeding tolerance into the animals was the way to go and that started my journey into understanding um, FE or facial eczema and um, I guess because I was the sort of farmer who asked a lot of questions I ended up on um, what is now Beef and Lamb New Zealand's Farmer Council or previous iterations of that organisation and being based in the King Country in the 
and the northern half of the North Island, it would be fair to say that FE has always been a focus. So morphing forward to now with my involvement with the FE working group, I realised even before we had that last bad outbreak over the last season that we, we had dropped the ball as far as FE education and research had gone. I became aware that we were losing capability in terms of research and I decided that we should get together and try and do something about that. So I um, called up the soldiers, so to speak, and um, Beef and Lamb came to the party and funded a forum which we held about a year ago, I think it was, almost to the date, and we invited everybody that had anything to do with facial eczema to the forum, and we had it properly facilitated, and out of that we realised that there was certainly a lot of needs that weren't being met in terms of the disease and its knowledge about it, and also the education which is ongoing for um, farm operators. So to date... We've ended up in a steadily better place. We now have a group which is officially known as the Facial Eczema Research and Education Group, but it's been shortened to just being called the FE Working Group. We have a coordinator in Dr Ken Genty, and um, Ken's been pulling all the various parts of it together. And of very recent times, working alongside Aaron Meikle, the working group has pulled in Beef and Lamb New Zealand, Dairy New Zealand, Deer Industry New Zealand, um, into forming a strategy that's going to be ongoing. We're, that's our job of work as we speak. Uh, it's multi-species, the FE problem, and it just made absolute sense to me for us to work together collaboratively and determine what the research and education needs are going forward. So that's a brief introduction and a very brief history of, of where we've got to to date, Aaron. Great, thanks Robert. And Neil, so um, same sort of thing, you want to give us the potted history? Sort of, I actually referred to you, I think, in some of the PR as a former ag research scientist, but I didn't realise it was quite as former as you were telling me, 13 years or so since you worked there, but your sort of history, your, your background, um, research areas, and how you've been, why you've been working in this field with EV? I joined what was then the Department of Agriculture as a student in um, 1963 and in one way or another have uh, worked in the field of facial eczema ever since. Uh, so I've been at the Ruaku Research Centre. Uh, I joined there very soon after the cause of facial eczema was discovered, the toxin was identified and at about the time that uh, the fungicides, for the effect of fungicides were discovered. Um, I was responsible for finding out that uh, zinc would protect against facial eczema and for developing the techniques for uh, testing rams for uh, their ability to withstand facial eczema. And in, so I've been involved in facial eczema research for <coughs> a lifetime, basically. All right. So a number of those things we're going to expand on later on, but look, start with the big picture stuff, I guess, that, which is the big picture. If you look at a map of New Zealand, there's been a, a distribution of facial eczema and where we, we see impacts on stock. The forecast for that is to increase quite markedly. Do you want to 
just explain why we're expecting it's going to get worse and as best you can where we think you know peat farmers need to start preparing for this to arrive on their farm. Well, the first thing to understand is facial eczema is caused by a fungus called Pithomyces chartarum, which produces spores in the pasture. It grows on the dead litter at the base of the pasture. And to grow well, it needs temperatures of about 20 degrees and uh, humidity of about 100%. So it's only in those times and areas where you can get those conditions. And in the past, that has been most of the lower-lying areas of the North Island, um, particularly when there's been um, a drought followed by rain, because the fungus actually grows on the dead litter that's in the base of the pasture. So with global warming, of course, the areas which meet those uh, conditions is going to move further south and to higher altitudes. In the past, it's been thought that um, it was unlikely to get facial eczema above 300 metres, mainly because it's cooler and often drier. Well, with the change in climate, the altitudes will rise and the distribution will move south. It may be that some of the problems of Northland, uh, if it gets drier, may be lessened, but the, generally the area is going to expand. So when you say, and we were talking about this before the call, when you say it moves, well, the problem moves, is that the Pythomyces already there? Do we know that? Or is it actually, it, it's going to move itself? Or, or if you're a farmer in a target, you have the fungal already, but it's just not the right conditions for it to cause a problem? What do no, we know about it? <laughs> I'd have to say I don't know the answer to that. We do know that um, facial eczema is, is in the past has actually occurred as far south as Geraldine. Mm -hmm. And certainly it's occurred in the northern parts of the South Island and the West Coast. Not every year, in fact, quite rarely. But if the conditions on that particular year meet the requirements, there have been facial eczema outbreaks. The very fact that there's been at least one outbreak as far south as Geraldine probably says that the fungus is about. Mm. Um, so if we get the right conditions, then it's highly likely that it'll be there. So just on those right conditions, last year was you know seen as a really bad year. What was it? Temperature, humidity. What were the factors that made last year so bad? And given people think it's going to be at least as bad in the future. Um, temperature and humidity and moisture mm -hmm. are the major issues. Um, as I said, it's growing on the dead litter at the base of the pasture and it needs to be moist and it needs to be warm. So if you get those conditions and those are the times when we get uh, warm, humid air masses moved down from the tropics, uh, those are classical. Mm. Some of the very worst years are actually being associated with La Nina, mm -hmm. um, but that's not to say that there have been, no, haven't been facial eczema in other years as well. And just out of interest, I see the other day they've declared we're heading into another La Nina this summer, so I understand. In that case, mm. be concerned. <laughs> 
So, um, and this is not directly relevant to New Zealand sheep and beef farmers or dairy farmers or deer farmers, but another interesting thing about it, um, those conditions exist in other countries, for example, in Australia, but the, the, the pithomyces, there's, there's a number of different species and some of them actually don't produce the toxins. That... That's true. Um, for reasons unknown, nearly all New Zealand isolates of the uh, pithomyces produce toxin. In some other countries, it's a minority of isolates. Um, Australia, from memory, is probably about 50-50. Some other countries, you know, they vary across the range. But New Zealand, 95% or so of all isolates um, produce toxin. So we're in the gun. Hmm. Bad luck or whatever, or it's ended up that way. Um, so, all right, you talk about it growing on the dead litter. So one of the things, and we'll, touch, we'll remind people about this at the end of the call and in a follow-up email, we've just revised the uh, Facing Up to Facial Eczema book that Beef and Lamb New Zealand produced with the helps of these two gentlemen and a number of others. Um, and one of the, the <coughs> sections in that is around different pastures and different forages in which are higher risk and lower risk. So partly it's the dead matter. Can you maybe expand a wee bit on which plant species or... or um, grass species are lower risk and why? Is it just because they have lower dead matter or is there some other inherent factors about those plants that don't lead to the problem? It's almost certainly just the amount of dead matter in the base of the pasture. Um, ryegrass pastures are amongst the worst. Fescue pastures, so long as they're clean, much less dangerous. Crops which have low litter Brassicas, chicory, they have much less, uh, have, can be very safe. Pure, swo uh, pure clover swords can have very low counts. Um, some of the less fertile grasses you get in hill country tend to have lower counts. So it's mainly how the pasture sward is structured, um, the amount of dead litter there, and whether it's of a structure that helps keep the um, temperature up and the moisture, and the moisture there. And allied to that, Neil, could you perhaps comment on um, grazing management, perhaps um, not going down to very low residuals when you've got dead and dying leaf litter? Grazing pressure is quite a determinant of how severe a facial eczema will be. Um, most of the spores are in the base of the pasture, so if you cut in layers, um, that's where you find most of the spores, and as you go up the leaf height, fewer and fewer. So during an outbreak, grazing laxly, moving the animals around quickly, um, grazing them on areas which are, tend to be drier, colder, will all help reduce risk. Can it be, um, can grazing management, just to expand on what Robert was asking, can it be preventive? If you, can you graze your pastures to avoid, if you, you try and graze to avoid the amount of dead matter, can you lower your risk of high spore counts? The lower the, <coughs> excuse me, the lower the uh, dead matter content, you know, obviously the lower the substrate for the fungus to grow, um, the lower the spore count potential is, but Generally, particularly in ryegrass pastures, which are across so much of New Zealand's uh, pasture land, there's nearly always enough litter there to 
for a toxic crop to grow. Mm. You can make it worse, you know, don't top, for instance, mm. just before facial expert season. Mm. Um, you know, so bad grazing management can make it worse. What about, um, this is a personal interest living on the east coast of the South Island, uh, you mentioned a number of species, what about lucerne? And grazing lucerne tends to leave a reasonable amount of dead matter behind by, by design. Is that any idea on um, the risk of facial eczema on lucerne? I have to say in 40 years I don't know I've ever heard of grazing lucerne as a, <laughs> in terms of facial eczema. Um, I think it will depend very much on how the, the grazing height. If you keep up above that uh, dead litter, then I think you know, your, your risks yeah. will be lowered. Would you have the same uh, damp, high temp uh, conditions replicated mm -hmm. in a standard lucerne? True. I'd argue possibly not. Maybe not yet. Yeah, not yet, but it, maybe, maybe it could happen. Mm. What so, about something, Sorry, to, something to monitor, I would mm. suggest. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, look, I'm coming at this from a, a, a very naive um, background, because where I come from, we don't think we've had it, and I'm, I'm south from Geraldine as well, so, but it's coming by the sounds of it. Um, one of the other, you know, when we talk about uh, species and so on, but we've also had, you know, major breeding efforts or, or selection efforts in ryegrass endophyte for protection against Argentine stem weevil and, and various other pests, but they're trying to minimise the animal impacts. Is there any possibility in terms of selection or breeding within ryegrasses with endophytes or anything like that to, to reduce their facial eczema risk? A little outside my <laughs> field of expertise, but I think one of the um, factors that ryegrass litter persists and is there for the fungus to grow on mm. is its sort of fibrous nature. So I guess the corollary might be that if you breed for lower fibre content, something which rotted away quicker, then you may be able to reduce the number of spores there. Okay. But I guess that's part of what we were talking mm. about originally, Aaron. There are things that we need to research, and perhaps that's just one of those avenues that we should be following up with mm. the R&D. And that's part of, you know, tonight why it's interesting <coughs> to see the questions we get in from the communities mm. about what are people wondering about and that helps guide us in some of the, the investment decisions we might make Absolutely. in research or development. That's right. Okay, so let, let's move on and talk about the animals now that are on these pastures and so on. Um, Neil, you touched on it a wee bit, but, or Robert, you can probably touch on this as well. What is the issue? I mean, we talk about liver damage and obviously the, it's facial eczema, so it causes the, the eczema on the face. Um, What's happening in the animal? Why are we getting those um, symptoms and, and impacts on the animal's health? Well, the disease is actually an intoxication, and the name facial eczema is almost a misnomer. What's actually happening is that the sporodesmin uh, is very toxic to cells, and it's taken in when the animal eats, taken up into the liver, and there it causes damage, particularly to the bile ducts. And then the bile ducts um, swell, get edema, and can block off completely. And then at that stage, the animal can no longer excrete a lot of the um, byproducts of chlorophyll in the glass and grass, which normally get excreted in the bile and into the faeces. And so that spills back into the 
bloodstream and there's a particular um, chemical known as phyloerythrin which is the breakdown product of chlorophyll which is photodynamic. It absorbs light energy um, and then re-emits it in such a way that it starts to cause cell death, cell damage. And so that's why you see some of the clinical signs in the exposed area on the animal because it's on the face, the muzzle, the ears, the udder, um, the escutcheon, where the blood supply is fairly close to the surface, it's not protected by wool or hair to the same extent, and so you get this uh, photosensitisation. Um, you see it as the animals start to seek shade, uh, reddening of the tissue. Uh, they rub themselves against uh, fences and gates and trees and cause damage, and then you get uh, you know, visible signs. But most of the problem is because of damage to the function of the liver. So when you talk about clinical versus subclinical, clinical is obviously what you can see, the facial damage. The, the damage to the liver, is that what you're calling subclinical damage? That's subclinical yep. damage. Yep. Um, it's only seen if you slaughter the animal and mm. examine the liver, okay. or if you take blood samples and anal uh, do an analysis for um, what we call GGT. It's an enzyme released from the damaged bile ducts. Okay. So, so the issue is that... Um, even with animals that are affected that are not showing any ex external signs, the ones that we call ex um, clinical cases, even subclinical where there are no external signs, no drooping ears, no reddening, they look quite fine. There's still a depression in production yep. and that's how that can affect us. Farmers may not even be aware that they've got an issue mm. until they realise that they've got a depressed scanning percentage in ewes, for example. So it really comes down to it's a it's a it severely reduces production across those species that we we're discussing. So let's talk a bit more about that. If if you're starting to see clinical signs, the facial eczema, uh, the photosensitivity, and we were again talking a wee bit this about before, and I know it's difficult to be absolutely precise, but there's some rough estimates. If you're seeing one percent, five percent of your sheep flock with clinical facial eczema. What, how big is the iceberg under the water, effectively? What do we can you estimate or, or big picture, say, roughly this many are likely to have subclinical damage? Well, for example, in one of the trials, we had 275 ewes. Mm -hmm. Three were found to, be, to have um, clinical facial eczema. But it was very mild, and it was only because the animals were looked at every week mm -hmm. as part of the trial. 45% of the animals had elevated GGTs, which meant there was some level of liver damage. Mm -hmm. And in that flock, the, they were scanned, the lambing percentage dropped 8%. Mm -hmm. And that is a very mild outbreak. Yeah, with a single figure percentage. It's of a single figure percentage. Um, rough figure, if you go up into a few higher percentages, say 5% clinical, You'll have more than 50% liver damage, mm -hmm. probably getting up to 60-70%. Mm. So in, in some of the areas that are hot for facial... In a lot of years you could have no clinical facial eczema, but you would still expect you might have a significant proportion of the flock, the herd, with subclinical impacts on production. Yes, yep. very definitely. 
it's an yeah, endemic's not necessarily the word, but it's an ongoing problem that people don't recognise except in the worst years possibly. It's, uh, it's a hidden problem because yeah. mostly there's um, no outs, mm. external signs. And for instance, there are lots of other things which people would put it down to. Uh, for instance, if you uh, dose lactating dairy cows with very low levels of the toxin, you get no measurable liver damage, mm -hmm. you get a drop in milk yield. Okay. So, and that's in autumn. There are lots of reasons for drops in milk mm -hmm. yield in autumn amongst dairy cows. If you give them a bit more, you get changes in milk composition which look exactly like mastitis and elevated somatic cell counts. Mm -hmm. So. Trying to get a handle on the size of the problem. So um, that's the impact, the scale of the problem. Um, what can people, what's the monitoring, what can people do to try and, we're going to talk about management decisions and longer term breeding decisions shortly, but um, if you're a farmer on a deer farm, a dairy farm, a sheep and beef farm, what's the monitoring of either animals, pastures, spore counts that you can do? What's the recommended tools? Well, in one sense, one of the few good things about pithomyces is the spore is actually quite easily recognised. It's quite a very distinctive shape. It's often described as looking like a hand grenade. Um, so it is quite easily recognised. So it is quite easy, but tedious, to uh, collect pasture samples, even fecal samples, and um, do what, what we call a wash count, dilute them, wash the spores off the grass, put them under a microscope and count them. Mm -hmm. And so you can monitor when they are starting to appear, how fast they're growing. So monitoring is, is key. Mm -hmm. You get some idea from watching the weather patterns, of course, because it's not going to happen in the middle of a drought. The end of the drought, when it rains, it probably will happen. Mm -hmm. So monitoring is the key. And various agencies are providing mm -hmm. that monitoring already, so my advice would be to watch that that count that the agency is providing for your district and then start to think about taking action before the spore counts go too high rather than waiting till you've got a severe problem before you start to take some action. So is there a rule of thumb for when spore counts are too high or? Well we've had a big discussion about this recently <laughs> haven't we Neil and um, it was very difficult to get to a definitive level of spore counts that where we would start to look at each other and be very worried. But the consensus was if they start to rise mm -hmm. and you've got that those weather conditions prevailing where the temperature's coming up and the humidity's coming up, be concerned about it. And again, we're going to get a wee bit more into what you can do when that happens. But um, at the moment... We publish them in Beef and Lamb New Zealand's eDiary every week. They're on the website, on a short qualities website, the, the monitoring each week. Um, is that a good enough monitoring, or do you think people should be doing their own you know, farm-specific monitoring, or is the area monitoring good enough? Like a lot of answers, it depends. <laughs> now, it depends on where you are and what your past history is and what the weather's looking like. You must remember a district average mm -hmm. is an average... By definition, that means that about half the spore counts will be lower mm -hmm. and half will be higher. And so for some farmers in a district, if you're relying just on a district average, it's too late. You may be in that top percentage where it's, mm -hmm. the counts are already high. Um, so 
watching um, district monitoring um, early in the season, um, particularly when the weather isn't really too threatening, okay. As soon as the weather starts to look more threatening and the spore count rises in your district, then the best thing for an individual is to start monitoring or his own property, and particularly the areas where he might be grazing or thinking of grazing mm-hmm. his stock. So even though weather, climate, humidity, etc., are, br- are pretty close between neighbouring farms, the things you touched on before around species, grazing management, amount of dead matter, can be different enough between two neighbouring farms to have significant differences in spore counts. Well, even I'd suggest on a farm too, because mm-hmm. I, the way I look at it, Neil, and correct me if I'm wrong, I've always viewed it as a microclimate thing. Mm-hmm. So there'll be areas within an individual farm which will have high spore counts mm-hmm. and areas on the same farm which may be comparatively safe. Mm-hmm. Same occurs within a paddock. Yep. Areas near a hedge, sheltered from a drying wind, higher spore counts than across the paddock mm-hmm. in a drying wind. So there, there are big variations even across a paddock and certainly from paddock to paddock. So you're encouraging people to do their own, and I mean, this sounds very similar to what we talked about last month with soil testing. You would encourage individuals to do block blocks within their farm to get an idea of the range within their Yes, farm. yeah. Yep. The more you know about what's happening on your farm mm. this year and in past years, mm. the better you're prepared. And just to be more specific about how did you talk about the wash test, but how do you do that? Do you do your own or are you sending them off to a lab and getting the results back? These days most of them uh, would be done by veterinary practices on the whole. Um, and that's a case of the farmer taking the samples and curing them to mm-hmm. the local vet lab who will then return. But the, the technique is actually very, very simple. Mm. Um, it all requires is a reasonably good microscope, um, a particular slide which is called a hemocytometer, um, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. And it's simply just a matter of taking a set amount of grass, mixing it with ten times the weight of uh, water, giving it a, a good shake, then putting an eyedropper full on the slide mm-hmm. and looking at it. Um, Many years ago, when I first came into FE research, it was the time when uh, um, Margaret de Mena uh, was teaching farmers, or mainly it was farmers, how wives to do the counts. Mm-hmm. And there used to be um, several hundred farmers doing their own spore counts. Mm-hmm. Um, Timing. So we talked about some of the conditions and, and the ongoing monitoring, and this is actually something we've been talking about in the working group, Robert, around uh, traditionally the area monitoring, the published stuff starts in beginning of January. Um, this year we're actually going to start a bit of a, a, not an experiment as such, just a trial, do some in the coming six weeks up till Christmas to see well, what things are like. What's your expectation, Neil? Are we, with the way things are changing, are we seeing spore counts climbing earlier in the year than we historically have expected to see them? Um, Well, I'd have to say I haven't actually seen any evidence to suggest that's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, The spore counts in those graphs that come out 
you know, they're, they're rising at about the same time most years. Mm-hmm. There's a bit of variation, obviously, because there are variations in the rainfall and the temperatures from year to year. Um, mm-hmm. My prediction for your yeah, work, good. that you will find very low, almost nil counts from mm-hmm. now till December. Good. And we're recording this, so, so we'll hold you to it. <laughs> you can hold me to it. So and then it come back and tell me <laughs> if I'm wrong, because someone else might ask me the same question. So that actually does raise an interesting point, though. So you know, you talk about the climate change and how we've seen it move higher and further south, but you don't think that climate change will see it coming earlier in the year. Oh, if the climate change actually brings the temperature and the moisture forward, mm-hmm. yes, you will yeah. see it earlier. Okay, yeah. but at the moment, you don't think we. I don't know that, well, we haven't really moved far enough along that warming to actually bring that, that forward, I, okay. I don't think, yet. We're enjoying what you might call cool but moist conditions at mm. the moment. Not particularly warm, even here in Hamilton. You know, normally when I'm up here I'm saying, can you send some rain south? But this year I think we're one of the dampest springs in 30-odd years in places, so we're, mm. we're doing all right at the moment. Mm. Um, on spore counting, then, uh, one thing that comes up from time to time, you talk about the pasture method, and others talk about the fecal spore counts, just like we do fecal egg counts, you can do spore counts in, in faeces. Any comments on that method? Is it better, worse, more accurate? Um, compliments, replaces? What's its role? It's a complement, I think, mm-hmm. rather than a replacement. To actually work out the amount of toxin the animals are getting, you have to know three things. How many spores, how many they're actually eating, and so for that you need to know the total amount of grass. For instance, if we're looking at a grass spore count, we can measure the number of spores per gram of grass. What we don't know is how many grams of grass the animal eats, mm. and whether it, what it's actually selecting is actually what we've measured. So we've, we can measure two out of the three things you need to know. And it's the same with a spore, uh, fecal count. Mm-hmm. We can measure the spores per gram of faeces. We don't know how many faeces they avoided, so you can't work out the total amount of toxin. Mm-hmm. So neither of them tell you all of the picture. What they do tell you is that there are spores about and there is risk. Mm-hmm. The pasture count can identify the risk before the animals are exposed. So, you know, if you want to go around and uh, count every pasture on your farm, you can identify the safest and put your animals there if you want to do that amount of work. The downside of that, it's a lot of work, a lot of sampling. Fecal sampling is easier, you just pick up a few faeces. The downside is that you can't do the count until the spores have passed through Mm -hmm. the animals. So it happened to be a toxic pasture. The only time you know that is about three days, two to three days after the animals have eaten the spores. Mm. So early in the season, fecal count would be quite appropriate as a monitor just to determine are there spores around? Mm -hmm. Are they rising? But as soon as they start to rise, then I would think wash counts for the pasture are a much better way to go Mm -hmm. because that can identify there is a real risk particularly if you're grazing hard. Okay, so you've listened to this sort of stuff, you understand the biology, what the issue is with, you're doing the monitoring that we've just talked about, Uh, you start to see a lift, what do you do? 
what do you know, what are your suggestions? What can people do to avoid, remedy, mitigate the impact that's coming from the rising spore counts? The only options that people have at the moment are, well, I suppose, feed substitution, mm-hmm. put them on crops, um, feed out your winter silage. So feed substitution mm-hmm. um, or zinc prophylaxis. Mm-hmm. Um, dosing with zinc oxide has been shown to reduce the amount of toxic or the damage that the toxin does. You have to have the, tox- uh, the zinc there at the time the toxin mm-hmm. is taken in because it's protecting by binding to the toxin, zinc binds to the toxin mm-hmm. and stops it um, um, entering a, a cyclic reaction which causes cell damage. So you've got to have the zinc there at that time. Giving zinc after has no good mm-hmm. effect at all. Um, and in fact, giving it weeks before has no effect either because mm-hmm. it's that timing issue. Um, and currently at the moment, those are the only two things that can be done. You can try and, av- oh no, there's one other, which if you do earlier, and that's to spray pastures with fungicides. Mm-hmm. There's one particular class of fungicide and only one class of fungicide which will prevent the um, spores that are there germinating and growing a new set of mycelians and you know, reduce the number of spores multiplying. So I'm coming back to zinc, because there's been a few questions about that, but just while we're on the fungicide, what's the class of fungicides? And it's, how effective are they? How cost effective are they? It's the benzimidazoles, mm-hmm. so... Um, the white drenches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the very first work was actually done with the benzole drench. Mm-hmm. Um, by... Uh, Spraying it and diluted onto pastures. Yeah. It was a farm manager on the Manatuki Research Farm who saw that it was uh, effective against some fungi mm-hmm. uh, and decided he would try do a trial <coughs> on... Hmm. on the farm for EFE. Um, so Ben Lake is one, MyTac, I don't know them all off by name, but it's that one class of fungicides, so quite a number of them um, in a group. And they work? They do. Um, the trial work that um, Jack Powell and Margaret Amena did many years ago uh, depending on dose rates, it would reduce the rises in spore numbers somewhere between 55 and 65 percent. Mm-hmm. So the issue is you have to put them on well, you have to put them on before the spore counts get to toxic levels. It doesn't actually kill the fungus, mm-hmm. it's just stopping the germination and the, the new generations. Mm-hmm. So works if you do it properly, but you do have to spray all areas the animals are going to graze, um, and it's well, it can be expensive. Mm. You got any comments, Robert? Is Expense. it cost effective? Well, I guess it is if it saves your animals, but I think long term, it's I don't think it's sustainable mm. for a number of reasons, mainly being the cost and um, ensuring that it's effective. Because mm. how long, how often do you have to do it, for example? Mm. And how long can you um, sustain the cost benefit 
of their method. So in trial work, the sport counts have been held down for generally about four or five weeks, mm. six mm. weeks at the most. Mm -hmm. So in a very severe year, you would have to respray every, say, every four weeks. Mm. So the other method then you talked about using zinc and a, is a prophylaxis, um, and there's two methods, bolus or in drinking water. Um, in trial work, drinking water can be very effective, but it, it's also been shown to be very variable in how well it's been uh, applied on the farm. There is um, survey work which shows that uh, it you know, is very variable. Mm -hmm. um, in, so the other option is drenching or boulders. In dairy cattle, of course, it's quite possible to, to drench daily. Later in the, or well, earlier, they've probably been drenching for magnesium and anyway. So drenching is quite a, an option in those circumstances. Because it needs to be done that frequently, daily? Best protection is daily. Yeah. You can get some protection dosing every second or third day. Mm -hmm or even weekly, and we did actually do some trial work with sheep where we got some protection dosing fortnightly, mm -hmm. but it wasn't particularly good. You know, it, you could see that it was having an effect, but wasn't really worth the, that. So it's really got to be daily or best every second day. And if you, so, and the other option is are the boluses. Mm -hmm. So what, Specific question and a couple of questions on this, and we were discussing it. We had a good discussion before this call. What's the sustainability of using zinc? It's a heavy metal. Um, the question we had come in is any environmental implications from basically animals having that in their feces from zinc bolus or um, the other methods? Well, I guess it has to be con a matter of concern. Um, it will, with time, build up. Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess it's a, it's an issue that needs to be looked at. It it hasn't, as far as I know, been examined mm -hmm. in any research way. Um, so I guess that's an issue that has to be resolved. Mm -hmm. well, and it does have implications, of course, for long-term usage. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the discussions we've had in the FE Working Group is certainly the issue of a non-tariff trade barrier. Mm -hmm. Um, heavy metal, zinc's a heavy metal, and um, there is, has been concerned expressed that long-term use could come back to bite us mm -hmm. because we are a food-producing nation. Mm -hmm. yep. the, well, we did do some work on that very early on. Zinc dosing does not change the zinc level in tissue, mm -hmm. um, or muscle tissue to any great extent, but it will accumulate in liver. Mm. So in offal organs, yes, yeah. um, didn't have much effect on milk levels either. Often with these things, perceptions become oh, reality, even if yeah. the science is yeah. not necessarily oh, supported. at all. Yeah. A um, couple of other questions around this, you know, what you can do to manage it. Um, and one question, do lime applications help? I guess either directly or indirectly through lime and soil conditions, lower dead matter, high quality pastures, anything like that? Any comments on that one? It's been looked at. Mm -hmm. um, I know there's been some 
claims for it. It was first looked at about 40, 50 years ago, mm-hmm. and in that trial, Lyme had no effect. In more recent uh, well-established trials, it has no effect. Um, you've got to remember that the toxins produced by a fungus and putting lime on it, lime is not a fungicide, mm-hmm. and most fungicides have no effect on this particular um, organism anyway. Mm-hmm. So the only way it could have any effect is changing the nature of the sward. Mm. Um, more clover. Um, more clover, less litter. And that would be the only way it could have an effect. So relying on lime, um, not at all advisable. Perhaps Aaron, better quality pasture, less leaf litter and more uh, attention to the grazing method so that you're not going down low into the residuals could be a, a good suggestion. Yeah, not so the whole answer, but part of the answer. So good practice in yeah. soil and pasture yeah. management yeah. generally will yeah. help. Um, another specific question on that is whether seaweed feed to stock gives any assistance. Uh, no, well, that's the question. Yeah, I don't d- difficult question to answer, but I think um, a lot of those methods may have some merit, but we need to actually do some really good trial work to see whether that is actually the case or whether it's um, falling into the realms of possibility rather than probability. But so Neil yeah. might have some comments about it. See, we might have zinc yeah. in it, doesn't it? It might have zinc, but the amount of zinc hmm. is going to be a at best at the trace element level and the amount of zinc we're giving to the animals for protection is uh, very substantially higher, it's 10-20 times greater than their need is as, as a trace element. Um, I'd have to say in my uh, rational scientist hat I could see no benefit from giving seaweed at all. The only good thing about the seaweed mixtures many many years ago I found that some of them were very good at um, suspending zinc oxide for dosing. Mm-hmm. And it was probably the algal, algal, mm-hmm. or the uh, agar meth, um, part of the... Yeah. And so the recipes that we wrote used to include uh, um, maxi crop. Mm-hmm. It could be, Aaron, that um, it makes farmers feel better because they're trying to do something. Mm. Not necessarily effective, but if somebody's taking some action and they're desperate, and I can understand that desperation, you can understand people wanting to have a go. Which is what we're but for me, know. I need to have proof that it yeah. actually works. Yeah. And it may, it, um, just, I, look, I don't know, and I can't remember where the question came from, but possibly it was something to do with what you talked about there, that you had actually used the likes of maxicraft and seaweed extracts. Yeah, it was, it was actually because it allowed you to support, um, suspend more zinc oxide in a smaller volume of liquid mm-hmm. and also stabilised it so that it would actually sit there as a stable suspension. Now I'm sure you know, if you went to a pharmaceutical company they would come up with something um, that would do the job. And, um, but you need to experience actually trying to drench animals with a zinc suspension mm-hmm. through a drench gun. Um, it brings out the best and the worst in people. <laughs> The idea that it would work actually came from a farmer somewhere down near Gisborne. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
All right, so we've talked about some monitoring, some shorter term stuff, but let's move on to the, the longer term options. And look, from what I can see, this is one that offers probably the, some of the, the, the greatest hope for sheep, cattle, deer, which is genetic tolerance to patients for now. Just want to be clear, I got my knuckle, well, I didn't my knuckles slapped, but I certainly got this explained to me in no uncertain terms. We're talking tolerance, not resistance. Yeah. Because it is a toxin. If you give anything, any animal enough of it, it will be affected by it. So hence the difference between tolerance and resistance. They can handle it at a certain level, but even very tolerant animals eventually could well, be. Yeah, for example. All right. Yeah. So Neil, this is something I know you've been involved in, and Robert, I know yeah. this is funny. Tell us about the, the current, the Rangar, the FE Gold process, what it involves, what... Um, how it works, the opportunities that are there, for, and why, why farmers in affected areas should be using it. Well, essentially, it's a performance test mm-hmm. for potential size, and the technique is, is really very simple. The potential size are usually selected because of their other performance mm-hmm. trait, um, are dosed with a known amount of sporodesmin, the toxin that causes facial eczema and a blood sample is taken at that time to see what their normal GGT level is and then three weeks later another sample is taken to see whether they've suffered any liver damage. Now the amount of GGT that appears in the blood is very closely related to the severity of the liver damage Mm -hmm. and so if you get uh, a very large rise in GGT values, then obviously it's suffered significant liver damage and is sensitive to facial eczema. Mm-hmm. And so the system which has been in place since 1982, the first um, commercial testing was done, um, has been to test the RAMs and then use those few mm-hmm which have not reacted to the dosing. And so that's been going on since, as I said, since 1982. Uh, Quite a lot of those original breeders are still, or their sons these days, their sons are now still in the breeding game. Mm. And so they have had flocks which have been under test for 30 something years. Um, The amount of toxin given has just gradually crept up if they are doing the breeding program correctly, um, if they're selecting, you know, testing enough animals and only using the best. And it's relatively highly heritable as a trait? It's a very highly mm-hmm. heritable trait. It's uh, heritability 0. 0.42, mm-hmm. which as I'm given to mm-hmm. understand is about the highest heritability going. So, and the, the breeders though, with that high heritability, the breeders need to keep on testing because once they've established the lines that have got a high tolerance, and there was a um, a pair of flocks set up at Ruakura um, just to try and look at that, and at the time that work was discontinued a few years ago, the lines were still diverging. Mm. So, I guess the question is until. Um, the breeders st- um, stop seeing any advance. Mm. 
then I guess the answer is they should keep selecting. I think one of the important things that I'd like to mention at this juncture, Aaron, is that the um, the industry flocks, you know, which are basically a, a set of research flocks that farmers uh-huh. have provided data from, from the progeny testing using the sporodesmond testing, Though that data that comes out into Sheep Improvement Limited database that's used to validate genomic tools, uh-huh. which I think is a very important thing in terms of being able to um, have another set of tools in the toolkit. So we need to do more progeny testing so that we've got more data to add more weight to the validation uh-huh. of those genomic tools. But of course, the genomic tools only work when the animals in the cohort are actually related to the flock from which the progeny testing is done. But it's still a good tool. One of the downsides of the progeny testing is the sheer cost of it. It's, roundly speaking, it's about $400 per ram that a breeder will pay to to get it completely um, assessed. And one of our aims is to try and do some more research into reducing that cost so that we can drive the number of progeny tests done in cohorts of sheep upwards, thus providing more um, robust data sets for the validation. So to answer your original question, it's really important that farmers carry on doing the testing. And I think um, you could say that the industry standard that they've kind of arrived at is around about 0.6 milligrams per Uh kilogram live weight of the animal. But I have heard of breeders uh, where they haven't been getting a reaction at that level, they've actually raised that level a little bit higher, 0. 0.62, 0. 0.65 I've heard of, and that is to try and test those animals enough because you need to um, find at what level yeah. you're getting to to actually get a solid selection because it's not actually that useful if they all pass. You actually want to test them to a level where you've got a few failures so that you know that you're actually putting selection pressure on the cohort. So 0.6, that's the sporadismin dosage you're talking about. Yes, yeah. And you'd expect that with that heritability and 30 years of selection, you would expect that tolerance to have lifted. Well, I I think it's a a story that um, the likes of Neil and the sheep industry should give them all themselves a big pat on the back because it has been a great success story and um, the breeders that have been involved in that right from the early days really do deserve accolades for deciding that the long-term benefit was worth the pain. Uh-huh. And it's, um, from my perspective, as a commercial farmer with a small recorded uh, flock, it makes your farming life so much easier having tolerant animals because you go into a season like we've just had and there are very, very few clinicals and uh-huh. your lambing percentage is staying up where it should be. So to me, it's a no-brainer. Um, using prophylaxis methods, you know, drench capsules and drenches on a, on a hill country sheep and beef farm, it's just um, not really on. So the to me, the breeding way is the only way to go. And um, how widely is it, is it actually been used? Has it been used wide enough, or have we got a big opportunity there still within the ram breeding industry to...? Oh, a huge opportunity. Um, not being involved directly in it anymore, I, I don't know what the numbers are, but it, I doubt that there's ever been more than 50, 60 breeders. Yeah, around about 50 or 60. I mean, Neville Amys, who runs the Ram Guard program, could tell us exactly how many 
people are actually using the RAM guard service, but I think as climate change goes ahead and as more RAMs are required for the industry, we really have to up our act as far as producing enough proven size to deal with the problem. So, um, as always with things in breeding, and you know, I've heard the same around selecting for worm resistance or tolerance, whichever way you're going. Um, is there a free lunch? What are the, the genetic or phenotypic correlations here? Are they, is it um, positively or negatively correlated with other production trays? If you select for this, are you going to reduce meat yield? Or Well, my, my experience of that, Aaron, has been that um, there's been no no downside to it. Um, I mean, in a humorous sense, I remember an early breeder who first got involved with this said that it was a great advantage to have a live sheep rather than a dead one. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, while it's humorous, it was actually very real. But now, um, morphing or moving forward in, into the here and now, we've got highly tolerant sheep, which are also highly productive in terms of all facets of their production. So, because in parallel to selecting for FE tolerance, breeders have also carried on selecting for three or four other main traits, so they've made parallel progress. So there, I don't think there's been any downside to it at all. And but Neil might have his own view on that, but um, to me it's been a win-win. Yep. Neil? In the um, research flocks where there was selection only for FE and not for any other productive trait, I don't think uh, there were any significant adverse uh, effects but one of the interesting positive effects was that facial eczema resistant sheep are more resistant to ryegrass staggers Mm -hmm. and there's quite a a, it's a significant Mm -hmm. um, association Um, and I think the reverse actually applies the other way around you can actually select for ryegrass staggers resistance and directly it has, and that has an effect on. So probably what it's saying that there are some ways of handling toxins, mm-hmm. which selecting for one helps with the other mm-hmm. particular toxin. A sort of a general. Um, the other thing, ability. Aaron, um, if you look at the advanced central evaluation on Sheep Improvement Limited, and you know the families, and you're a bit of an enthusiast like I am, you can look at the families and the flock numbers, and you can see a theme coming through where the highly productive flocks are also tend to be highly uh-huh. FE tolerant. Uh-huh. So to me, that's absolutely yeah. proof from a scientific point of view that the two things are working hand in hand. And just on this breeding and tolerance, another thing, we had a good discussion over tea, is that... Um, Neil, before you talked about the impact of um, clinical and subclinical impact on scanning percentage and lambing percentage, and we tend to see that across the industry in a bad year. We had a bad facial eczema year this last year, we've seen the lambing percentage drop. But it's quite possible for commercial farmers who haven't had a history of buying rams with facial eczema tons that they're actually having that every year. They might think 140% lambing's good, but it's been suppressed every year, 5 to 8% from what it would be if they had a higher level of tolerance. Oh, yes, certainly. There's a subclinical impact every year, is what I'm sort of on. In flocks where, which have been monitored and bled and to identify the subclinical liver damage, as the GDT levels rise, the percentage of ewes that get mm-hmm. pregnant, the scanning rate 
uh, that drops. The scanning rate drops. Um, so the number of twins dropped, uh, and, and yeah, lambing mm -hmm. falls off. So even in, as I said earlier, in a flock where one percent very moderate minor clinicals, there was an eight percent drop in potential lambing mm -hmm. on scanning. So let's. Um sort of draw a lot of us to the close. And look, we've just gone a wee bit over time, but there's a lot in this topic, and it's it's a big topic, and it's going to get bigger, so I you know, wanted to cover this in some depth. Um, on the breeding side of things, and Robert, I know you've got first-hand experience with this, so you can comment on it. Somebody's listened to this call, said, right, that's the way they're going. How fast can people actually make a significant difference in a commercial flock to the level of facial eczema tolerance they have? Okay. Well, I can only talk about my experience. Um, when we had that very bad year back in 1992 and we decided to, um, well, euthanise all the rams and buy a new cohort of FE-tolerant rams, cutting to the chase, within five years we had a useful measure of tolerance within the flock. And that the evidence of that was that we were still having spore counts, we were reasonably high on our farm, um, but we weren't seeing the clinicals and also our lambing percentage started to go up in a meteoric fashion. Um, I think the rule of thumb is that if you get out there and purchase the tolerant rams and get going on a breeding um, program and you also apply some selection pressure to your replacement ewe hobbits, I think it's a five to ten year commitment. Um, but to me it's... Um, worth the commitment because it takes a lot of worry off your shoulders and also um, not a, exactly a fine point but it certainly adds dollars to your bottom line so the price of a ram um, is money well spent in my view in fact cheap as chips really when you consider the benefit of the, the genes that those rams have so, um, and just circling back a wee bit, we talked about the high heritability, the length of time people are doing it, and the levels of dosing they now mm. are doing, you would actually expect to see some significant differences in a commercial flock, potentially faster than that, because the rams you can buy yeah. must have a significantly higher level of tolerance. Oh, look, I think that would be fair comment. You were yeah, I, I think so. I can't remember what levels people were testing in those days, but I think it's probably around about, around about 0.4, if I remember mm. correctly. But we've got a few more tools, and as Neil alluded to, if we, if we work on both the sire and the female progeny side of the equation, we can make faster progress because we're actually selecting the female replacements as well as just having the input from the sires. Because you've got to remember that um, um, not all the progeny will be tolerant. So if you can select the progeny which actually are tolerant and you're keeping them, it makes a lot of sense in terms of building that that cohort of ewes up, you know, for standard flocks, you know, it's got uh, two-tooths, four-tooths, five-year-olds, and even some six-year-olds. The sooner you've got the whole cohort of flock to a level of tolerance, the better, in my view. Just this experimental work which just shows that if you take a group of tolerant rams, make them to a group of naive ewes, their offspring will have a resistance which is about halfway between. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, you know it's it's just that simple. But of course, you know, in one year that's only part of your flock. Mm -hmm. So that's the level that you would get with the first year's offspring. You're halfway towards that particular breeder. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so the higher the mm. breeder is in the beginning, the, yeah. the better you're yeah. off. And from there on, you just track along behind the breeder. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as he goes up, if you keep buying rams from him, you'll just track up with him. But you'll be behind, of course. Like, it's like the old story about buying rams, the first thing you must do is select the right breeder. Uh-huh. And then if he's making genetic progress, you'll follow along behind and, and also make progress. If he or she is making progress, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but anyway, look, we... Uh, no we, names mentioned, but uh, a good acknowledgement. Uh, look, we will... Um, but just on that breeding thing, I mean, as a well-known agricultural scientist once said, it won't happen overnight, but it will happen, and mm. you've got to start sooner or later. But um, from what the pair of you have been telling me tonight, it's as close almost to a free lunch as we get in, um, in sheep farming. Yeah. Well, I think one of the nice things about the sheep farming journey is that we can help the other species in this, and that's one of the reasons that we formed the group. Um, because we certainly want to see the same levels of tolerance across the other species and we know it's possible. Um, so we're here to help them as well because it's a New Zealand Inc thing, I think. Mm-hmm. It's one of those unfortunate things that we have here in our livestock industry and so we've got the proof that we know how to deal with it. We can deal with it. It's just going to take a little bit of time. Thanks, Robert. All right, look, we have gone over time, but I think there were good reasons for that, and there was some good material there that I, I wanted to make sure we addressed. So, but I will pull it to a close now. Many thanks to you out there, the listeners who've dialed in and sent your questions or are um, listening to this on the podcast. Um, all that we've talked about tonight has just been revised and updated in Beef and Lamb New Zealand's Facing Up to Facial Eczema book, which you can get a copy of online on our website or a hard copy free from us. Uh, for those of you that have registered, we'll send you out details about how to get a copy of that. The recording will be up on the podcast channel very soon, hopefully by the end of the week, so you can listen again to the bits you uh, took note of or share it around your friends and colleagues. But finally, <coughs> excuse me, a very large thank you to our guest tonight, Robert Carter from Waitomo. King Country, King my country. friend. It's all the same to <laughs> me, Robert, where I come from. And Neil Towers, who's uh, based here in Hamilton. So thank you, gentlemen. Thank you all out there. And good night. Thank you. Good night.